0: которые мы получили только что владимир путин
1: they were more than just gas pipelines they were among the most important economic links between Russia and Europe they were symbols of the continent's dependence on Russian energy and they were conduits for the Kremlin to spread corruption and malign influence. And on September 26, 2022, the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines were destroyed in a series of mysterious explosions. question of who was behind this brazen attack remains one of the most consequential unsolved mysteries of Russia's 16-month-old war against Ukraine. And in the absence of facts and conclusions, the predictable speculation, disinformation, conspiracy theories have stepped into the void. So what really happened to North Street? Well, I got just the guests to help us break it down and explain what we know, what we don't, and where the real evidence points. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Benjamin Schmidt, senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Kleinman Center for Energy Policy and an associate of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Ben's also a former European Energy Security Advisor for the U.S. State Department. Welcome back to the ver- vertical, Ben. Well, Brian, always great to be on the pod. I did not realize you had moved to the trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood from the funky Adams Morgan area. I live in the Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood. My office is in the trendy... <laughs> <different>. <laughs> just, just to clarify that important point for everybody. <laughs> and also joining us from Srebrenica, Poland, is Anna Mikulska, a fellow in energy studies at Rice University's Baker Institute. Anna also works together with Ben at the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at UN. And welcome to the podcast, Anna.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you
1: for joining us for joining us so so late where you are. Um so just to set the, the context, when the Nord Stream pipeline explosions took place in September of last year, they were already inactive due to sanctions resulting in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, although they were still filled with natural gas. Ben just to make sure we get started on solid ground, what are the facts? What do we know at this point? Thanks,
0: Brian. It's it's great to talk about this, and and I think that the facts that we want to start with are 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 in the months leading up to the explosion, so that that folks contextualize what the Russian Federation was doing in terms of energy weaponization against the EU, in particular. this would be the Nord Stream One pipeline uh, cuts that happened. Uh, in uh, remember, in 2021, before Russia's large scale invasion of Ukraine, uh, the Nord Stream Two pipeline, which was still far from uh being done or at least months from being completed, uh was spared from mandatory bipartisan sanctions by the Biden administration through a deal that it cut with Berlin in July 2021 to allow the completion of Team Two. Yet in its uh its its statement, joint statement on this uh this deal, it said that Germany would seek sanctions at the EU level should Russia uh further invade Ukraine or weaponize energy against the EU. At that time, they were already, Russia was already weaponizing energy against the EU in terms of uh, voluntary cuts uh, to um, gas deliveries to its own uh, Gazprom-owned, in many cases, storage facilities across the EU. So that was going on. As the war uh, loomed, uh, there was this joint uh, press conference, which we'll get back to, I'm sure, uh, between uh, Olaf Scholz and Joe Biden, where, where Biden said that uh, the project would be stopped if the uh, Russian, uh, Russian Federation, Russian military had carried out a large-scale invasion of Ukraine, as it looked like it was going to do. And uh, sure enough, just a few weeks later, uh, within 24 hours of the invasion beginning, the reinvasion invasion beginning, uh, Germany pulled the plug on the certification for Nord Stream, which was controversial already, uh, the certification, that is. And, um, uh, and then the Biden administration Reimposed the uh, the full blocking sanctions on Nord Stream two that again were uh, were pressed for for years by like Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. The cuts to European gas started happening in the springtime first through the, the mall um, pipeline, others in and Poland, and then ultimately in mid June, the cuts to Nord Stream one began, in which you saw. First, I think about 60% of the gas, or sorry, 60, uh, 40% of the gas was cut uh, in mid-June, um, and this began the saga of, uh, you know, the song of the summer for 2022 in terms of Nord Stream land was the Siemens turbine uh, situation, right. which which Russia claimed that if only it could get Siemens turbines that were under sanctions and, and weren't going to be sent back to Germany and then to, um, to Russia, from a facility in Montreal, Canada, that that then that would allow the quote-unquote technical issues solved with the cuts on Nord Stream 1 that summer and would allow the, the pipeline to resume operation. Of course, not only did the expert community, including myself and many others, like Adam as well, uh, said that this was not actually technically viable. Of course, Nord Stream 2 turbines were sitting right there. They transferred over Nord Stream 1, were this a real complaint? And uh, you have the situation in which not only, uh, you know, did the uh, parts of the German government, you'd have the German Econ Ministry and the Bundesnetzeichen for the national regulators saying that this was disinformation on the part of Russia, and that no, they did not need these turbines. Nevertheless, the Schultz administration pressed Ottawa, and the Biden administration backed that up. Uh, Ned Price came out and said that, you know, that this will help European energy security. I don't understand how that would push back on energy weaponization at all. But Ottawa reversed its decision. The Trudeau government sent the first of the turbines over to Germany, where it sat all summer. There was the uh, the famous uh, photo op that Schultz stood in front of the pipeline, or sorry, in front of the, uh, the turbine. And ultimately, even though that was there, the Russians never took possession of the turbine because it was, again, a false narrative. Uh, and, uh, there were further cuts, uh, throughout the summer until in early September, Nord stream one was fully cut. And again, uh, uh, Peskov and others in the Kremlin pointed out that this was, you know, if only sanctions were lifted if only there were, uh, political, uh, uh moves by the West, then indeed the pipeline could, could resume, uh, operation. So a
1: political cut. So that, that's the, that's the. Set up to later September. So when you step back and look at the context here, what we're what we're effectively seeing is the West sanctioning Russia for its for its full scale invasion of Ukraine. If if we look at the larger context here, um, I mean basically Europe and the United States are sanctioning Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Russia seems to be retaliating by cutting back its gas exports to Russia under the pretext that it needs this turbine. That falls under sanctions. That's basically the to kind of sum up where we were as we get to this this point, right?
0: That's right. And in, in Russia, as you know well, Brian never uh, associates these gas cuts with political demands specifically. There's always a quote-unquote technical uh, reason that they're going on, almost always false, right? The right three green were always technical. That's for other pipelines, always technical, uh, very very uh, dubious. And was again by the German federal authorities themselves uh, uh, backed up that this was a, a false claim. Nevertheless, uh, that happened. I testified before Canadian parliament calling on the Trudeau government to overturn this in early September of last year. Ultimately, later in the year, of course, after the explosions happened, the Trudeau, the Trudeau government did reverse this decision. And the, the concern that I raised was that by making that move, you allowed Russia to use energy weaponization, these cuts, Undermined an area that was really a problem for Russia, which is technology export control. So this this allowed them to start to claw back the uh, the the efficacy of our technology export controls regimes, which they could then push more broadly,
1: uh, which which are actually our. So this is the context we're going, and this brings us up to the to the explosion. And Anna, anything you would add to what Ben was saying? I think there
2: is just. In, in importance in underscoring several things that Ben mentioned in that whole uh, process. The fact that Russia used gas before war with Ukraine uh, as weapon, and that by actually constricting the gas that was stored in the units it owned in Germany, Netherlands, and Austria, that caused in the fall of 2021 spikes in crisis because there was a concern that European storage is much below the typical volumes. And in addition, Russia would only sell gas that was actually contracted. And again, it's again it's what to what Ben is saying. Russia never uses, uh, you know, never says, oh, we are using gas as a weapon. Make sure you are adjusting. They say, oh, you know, we're sending all the gas we, we contracted, we are not, uh, you know, we, we are not obliged to send more. At the time when the demand in Europe after COVID, COVID was rising and any normal supplier of gas would have been sending more gas, especially at the high prices that there were, Russia was not doing so, not behaving like a normal market-based supplier, and that was before even we thought about, you know, we, we thought about getting to 2022. So this is the context that's really important because it sets up Russia at the, at this, it sets up Russia state. I think the reason why, to some extent, Russia wasn't as, uh, you know, as, 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 as successful in kind of yielding the gas weapon is also that it started a little bit late, uh, the war. Potentially, had it started earlier in the winter, it could have had much worse circumstances. But that goes back to Russia's um, relation with China, which
1: we can talk. Right. About. Yeah. Well, well, we'll we'll get into that in the second half. We look yeah. at the Ost, Ost Nord Stream energy uh, landscape. Uh, ben, anything to add in the in the in the run up to the to the explosion in September? You basically we see we have Russia effectively weaponizing energy as it always has. We had this new twist now, of course, of the of the of the sanctions. And I kind of saw what Russia was doing here as counter sanctions. I mean, remember, energy was left out of the initial tranche of sanctions. And Russia seemed to be using energy to kind of roll back at least the export controls. Anything else to add before we get up to the point of the explosions? Yeah, I think that the that that's absolutely right, Brian. I think that,
0: you know, first of all, they were witnessing the EU the storm of uh what everyone thought was going to be a major energy crisis it certainly was a crisis uh that you know Russia was cutting gas through um through its pipelines um the thankfully uh the weather allowed the weather conditions the mar- and the market conditions the fact that uh China was still in its covid lockdown and therefore had uh, less of the LNG demand than it did um you know in previous years where it was actually the number one LNG importer it dropped to I think 16 or something don't don't quote me on that. We're on the record, but um, <laughs> I uh, I some say it dropped significantly. The, the the point being that um that opened up a lot of market liquidity in that that moment that window to allow you to backfill um, in, in the short term uh, some of the uh, some of the gas they were losing from Russia. But remember, for the first half of 2022, um, you know until all of these pipelines, aside from Perk Streamline Two and uh, some some of the gas pipelines. Uh, uh that were still operating everything else ultimately was cut but for the first half um, the gas storages were being filled um, by Russian gas so so there was a level of um, kind of padding in the system from Russian gas toward you you know to weather the storm so so the Russians saw this but other, other the other other thing you have to remember is this is about the time that Russia started its kinetic strikes against Ukrainian energy infrastructure right. ahead of last winter. And um, you know we'll we'll get back to that as we talk about how that I believe links to their motivation uh, if they were the culprit and we don't know who the culprit is but if Russia were the culprit on uh, the would explosions um, I think there's a direct link to
1: there. right so again what, what we have here is an attempt uh, by Russia to basically leverage fears of an energy crisis in Europe. Uh, In an effort to kind of roll back sanctions and that kind of brings us up to the explosions in September of 2022, uh, which destroyed, if I'm not mistaken, four of the three of the four lines that comprise both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Now, initially, when this happened, suspicion did fall on Russia, if I remember correctly, if I remember the vibe here in Washington, nobody had any hard facts yet, but suspicion was certainly falling on Russia. The things I was hearing from the administration, at least least publicly facing, suggested that the intelligence pointed toward Russia, although nothing definitively, of course, to be really clear, was said. This is just me reading between the lines in the very, very early weeks here. Um, And then some intelligence reports began to suggest that Ukrainian sabotage groups, uh, perhaps working uh, in in collusion with anti-Kremlin Russians, were actually behind the attack. Um, and we'll get into this discussion of 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 Pol- uh, you know, the Pol- Poland's alleged role in this and everything else as well. Um, and then most recently, now we see an investigative documentary by four Nordic public broadcasters suggesting that Russian ships able to perform underwater operations were present near where the uh, where the explosions took place around the time that the explosions took place. Um, Sweden, Denmark, and Germany, meanwhile, have all opened up official investigations then what what kind of again what do we know about this aspect and what don't we know based on these investigations and other things that have come out in the press
0: yeah so i think it's really important uh brian that first of all we're not going to spoil alert uh announce we uh you know that we've found the the culprit and we have no a- i just wanted to have a, a, a really yeah. clear discussion about what we you know and what don't we know it's really important, as a lot of reporting comes out on this, to understand um, how these uh, intelligence uh, 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 reports on the possible Ukrainian sabotage group and the, the involvement of this uh, 50-foot sailboat named Andromeda that supposedly uh, is in that thread uh, as being the culprit and a, a crew of, of, of six um, pro-Ukrainians or, 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 or Russians that are supporting Ukraine or something of that nature. Apparently, all with Bulgarian passports, according to the uh, to the investigation. What role they might have had in it? And comparing this to um, the the other assets that the Russians had in the region, I think it's really important to do this, and and we have to be precise about our language to the greatest extent possible. I think we're you know we're going to try our best on the power vertical to do so, but it's it's always hard in real time to do so. But I think the biggest thing we have to understand from the New York Times uh, initial. Kind of general article where they didn't um yet, you know, what what intelligence service was involved, and um, you know what was going, you know,
1: going on. Well, yeah, yeah, man. If I could, if I could stop you for a moment yeah. there, because when I was reading that New York Times piece, it was very the, the headline suggested it was U.S. intelligence, and then as I was reading yeah. the piece, it was like a review of intelligence, and it seemed to me that this was kind of European intelligence that was shared with the Americans. How did you read that? Yeah, that, I mean, we didn't know that at that point, but in in March, when that, that first story came out,
0: it started to, to kind of hint at the fact that it wasn't U.S. direct intelligence. Um, I, I should point out that we, you know, we we don't have anything more on this podcast than we're reading in the Times Post. Right. Journal on this. And so, you know, what we saw was, you know, U.S. officials speaking on background split on the veracity of the intelligence that was in and uh it kind of had that they you know where is this from but it didn't get to that point then skip forward to a few months later in which you have the discord leak uh portion of this uh which was basically effectively the same story with the same amount of, of detail but the, the difference was that this this didn't point out the direction of how things went and um the headline of course in the washington post uh from if i can get the uh the Date this was you know several weeks ago. Said the I'm going to read it out. U.S. knew about Ukrainian plot to bomb Nord Stream um, Nord Stream pipeline months before attack. To a casual observer, if I don't know anything about this and I'm reading that headline, I read okay, U.S. Knew, knows that that Ukraine did it. Yep. The problem with that is the intelligence says that right. So so where does the intelligence come from? In the article, it says it came from a single source, Ukrainian person individual that told a yet to be determined at that point, uh, intelligence service in Europe, which we later found in, uh, reporting from, uh, the post of the wall street journal was, was Dutch intelligence. Right, told them that, that the, about this plot of six Ukrainians or, or Ukrainian line folks to use a sailboat to, to bomb the North Stream uh, pipeline. Um, and that is a big difference because in that article, it points out that at least initially, uh, US intelligence had low confidence in the official or sorry, the uh, the person in Ukraine that was the, the source. And so it is. where is to say I don't doubt the story. The story is correct. The headlines suggest a little bit more concrete uh yeah. uh you know uh intelligence than than is there um in the the text of the story. So I think that editorial language and precision on headlines really needs to be a part of this as well, right?
1: Yeah, no. And what 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 bothers me about this is when this happened, first the New York Times report and then the Discord leaks, this began to solidify, even among supporters of Ukraine. It began to solidify a narrative like, ah, ah, so maybe the Ukrainians did do this. Um and and that but, but now what we're kind of learning is the facts don't really bear that out. Is that correct?
0: Well, I, I I'm not gonna di- I I can't discount it. Look, I right. personally don't have the fact, you know, all of the facts needed to discount that that story. And clearly, the Wall Street Journal and the Times and the Post have been uh, talking to um, sources, uh, according to their reporting, uh, in, in the German investigation. Remember, there are three investigations: right, Swedish right. investigation, a Danish investigation, and a German investigation. Right. the leaks that are coming out so far appear to be from the German investigation almost exclusively aside from the ones we'll talk about in a moment that Anna was mentioning before we got on that that you know students from Poland and students from from Denmark and Sweden but most of these reports have been on that so there have been a a, a lot of um uh, evidence gathered on the route of this this sailboat some some you know casual observers keep mentioning it as a ship on Twitter and et cetera. It's a sailboat. It's a fifty foot sailboat that's that's named Andromeda. Um and you know, there's been a copious amount of reporting on this, but again, there's a lot of questions that have to be raised on is this technically feasible? Can you sail a six person crew, apparently five divers and a and a medical uh uh for, you know, medical uh personnel, sail out in do this in a sailboat right without because there's no other vessels in these reports that are being um being discussed so we you know i think we have a big puzzle that we're missing a lot a lot of pieces um can you go out and do that easily and no expert that i have talked um you know in terms of technical diving we're talking about uh a depth of between 250 and 300 feet um, anything beyond 130 feet needs, uh, you know, basically technical diving. You're not just using normal scuba equipment with compressed air, um, and, and so it's not impossible, but is is it feasible? Is it likely that that capability um, is is um, is like you know likely to have done you know been able to carry out this act? And I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of, things, like, just the anchoring of such a vessel in that depth of water, you know, brings up a lot of questions. Is that easy to do? It doesn't have a dynamic positioning system, right, that can hold the vessel in place like a larger ship, this, again, as a sailboat. Um, and, and so that's that's going on. And then you have the technical feasibility of other assets that were in the area and, you know, comparing those. and we maybe we want to talk about that next with the, the Russian vessels that we're seeing there as well.
1: Yeah. And I was also going to point out to our, our, our listeners that Ben as a physicist. He knows, he knows what he's talking about here. Um, and uh, did you want to say something else, Ben? Oh,
0: no. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess the other thing, so, so the idea right now so far is that the, um, that in the investigation that's going on, on this sailboat that they have been able German, I allegedly, I guess German, Investors have been able to to tie down that on the sixth of September, this sailboat left Rostock. It went up near Kristiana, which was a very small island near the already pretty small island of Bornholm in Denmark, which was near the blast sites, and um, and was near the blast sites. It went to Poland, stopped over for twelve hours, and then came back. Um, and and uh, you know, in the days before this. Um, this incident took place at the same time. This pan-Nordic investigation, which is getting very, very little uh, play in Western press, or in sorry, in, in Western press, in, uh, in English-language press. So, for example, the Times, the Post, and the Journal—all of these stories have entirely left this thread out, which I think is really important to at least dismiss somehow, if 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 not mention, that there was a phalanx of Russian research vessels or naval vessels in this case. That um, were visiting the site in June, right around the time that the first cuts took place, the the explosion site at, at, at that point in June, and then were there on the twenty second, uh, around the twenty second of September, just a few days before the explosion took place. Among those assets, the Russian vessels in the area were the ss seven hundred and fifty Russian naval research vessel Siberiakov, along with the sport tugboat TB one hundred and twenty three, and a third Russian naval vessel that Nordic broadcasters haven't been able to identify by name, but they do point out that, for example, Stiver Yakov, and I'm quoting here, is believed to be capable of underwater surveillance and mapping, as well as launching a small underwater vehicle. It can be used to support and rescue submarines and have the ability to carry out operations on the seabed, according to experts interviewed by the broadcasters, end quote. Again, they don't point out that there's conclusive proof that the Russians would have done or have done this. But again, the I, I go back to capability uh, and technical feasibility of these operations versus the um, you know, versus just the the broad uh, reds that are,
1: yeah. And well, uh, we we seem to have temporarily lost Anna. I'm trying to get her back in. So Ben, let's just con- let's continue this, uh, sure. the, uh, the this conversation for the moment. I mean, so basically, we have two, we have two theories right now of what happened, right? We have yeah, the, and, you, it, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we have, we have <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I just want to make it clear, like you can get very
0: quickly into conspiracy theory land if you don't back this up with technical. Um, you know, technical feasibility assessment. And so that's why I'm not willing to go out and say that I absolutely conclusively think that the Russians did this based on their capabilities, but I can't help but notice that those particular vessels with seabed operations capabilities were there just days before. And um, it it deserves a a look-in very similar to how the time six days ago ended all of the various um, disinformation threads and, he said, she said back and forth on the, the, Dam Dam explosion by coming out with technical experts, with, uh, uh, engineers, physicists, et cetera, that pointed out that, that the Russians were likely to blame because the explosion would have had to come from the inside of that. Man. A similar investigation is absolutely needed by the Times, Post, and Journal, um, to, uh, to, if they can dismiss the Russian vessels. If that's the case, let's, let's, start going down and, and figuring out what could possibly have happened. Um, because again, a, a, a sailboat that unable to anchor or would have difficulty keeping a position, divers would have to take hours to go down to the seabed and come back up. They're having to stop for um, uh, recompression, you know, for pressurization because they don't want to get the bends. Nitrogen is, is getting into the bloodstream and tissue, et cetera. This take a long time so you know if if the vessel would have problems a sailboat keeping that position bobbing in the uh the middle of the Baltic Sea you know you, they don't want to lose their divers for example and so that's why you want really exquisite positioning uh, of boats so,
1: yeah so show's back. back yeah and's back we got two we, so we got two theories here we basically got this um you know these this these there's this sabotage team on a on a sailboat called the Andromeda sailing off the Polish uh coast into the Baltic and carrying out this, uh, you know, James Bond style operation Um, that is based on one source um, and in in, in a Dutch intelligence report um, and the technological feasibility seems uh, suspect, let's just say say the least. And the other theory is we have uh, Russian ships that were capable of underwater operations present near the site of the explosions at the time of the explosions now I mean I I'm just as a as as a layman looking at this it, it it's pretty clear to me which I think is more feasible Anna now that you're back how does it how does this look from Poland and what can you what can you tell us from from there
2: well I'm obviously have very important I obviously have very poor information since I keep being disconnected from my internet somebody <laughs> doesn't want me to talk you
1: <laughs> want to hear you come on they want to hear you while you can't hear.
2: well I'm still here right 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 um you know it's um it's that's the thing it's like we have to be rational we have to be thinking about what uh, what we really need want to about the facts right and i think um we are we have become this post fact type of uh, open society where where uh, headlines are enough for us to move uh, in one or other direction when we when we think about um issues like that and that's something that you know both ben and i don't want to happen and i think the most important uh, beyond just the facts and what what is feasible, what's not, is also the attitudes of different actors towards natural gas, towards energy, and the background information about which we've already talked about. So, what's the attitude of you know of Russia towards natural gas, for example, which I have argued many times in my uh, in my research, is very much based on geopolitical resource and the economic value is very much a secondary added type of bonus. What's the attitude of uh, of a country that's in war? Um, what can they move towards, and what can they uh, what can they do, and whether or not they feel justified in what they do is a, is is also an additional consideration. So I think that's important, and that we 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 have to look at facts. We have to we cannot divorce what's happening from the history. And from what we know about actors involved. And then things become a little bit more clear than just kind of looking at the surface of, of what's happening or of uh, reporting that's often kind of based on, you know, having the best headline. And it, it's
1: I, this well, before we move on and talk about the conspiracy theories, because that's a whole nother piece of this puzzle. Yeah. What is coming out of the three investigations that we can see so far, Ben? Is there anything? That's like, is any narrative really emerging?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So the narrative of those words, it's clearly from the, the Discord leaks story uh, of the, the single Ukrainian individual who told Dutch intelligence about this. Uh, the U.S. apparently, according, again, according to these reports in the Times posting, the Wall Street Journal, uh, warned the Ukrainians not to do this. They said that the Ukrainians had called off this, or either denied or called off the attack. They didn't believe that it was is going to go forward, and then, then it has... Uh, nevertheless, the explosions took place. Uh, that, again, is from the the, um, the reporting that's on this. So I, I, I think that most of the the thread on this, this sailboat, again, is coming from investigators in Berlin. And there have not been as many weeks for talking to the press involved from the other investigations going on. I will put on the table two things that have happened this week, however. For the first time, we've heard from Boling. Poland, uh Polish prosecutors that have been looking into this from their side have claimed quote that there was no direct evidence to suggest that the Andromeda the 50-foot yacht uh suspected of being involved in the explosion of the site took part in the sabotage end quote okay that that's the first statement we've heard from the polls on this I think officially in this process we need more evidence to back that up right whether you know wh- whatever that might be and the thing that came out last night was Danish broadcaster TV2 described, quote, completely new underwater footage created in collaboration with the German RTL, and Danish extra bladet and TV2 that shows it was very likely a relatively small directional explosive charge that caused the break in the pipelines. And the article goes on, and that was end quote, uh, article goes on to point out that this type of directional charge would necessitate a state actor involvement. And the experts interviewed in this article appear to cast doubt on the idea of Ukrainian saboteurs aboard the Andromeda sailboat, given that uh, to deliver this kind of payload, you would need a subsea drone or submersible. So again, going to capability. And does the sailboat do this? Did it have a, a, a code a submersible of some type to do this, if that is in, in fact the uh, explosives that were used? It remains to be seen, but we need more evidence on this. Clearly, the Russian
1: subsea operations vessel that had a submarine on board had such capability. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the thing that, and I want to get both of your thoughts on this, the, the thing that I always get stuck on in this story is the question of motivation. Ukrainian motivation is obvious. Um, in fact, the same motivation could be ascribed to a number of European company, countries who are <laughs> opposed to Nord Stream 2, but what is the Russian motivation here? And this is kind of my department and I just keep running. I mean, I'm like, what was the Russian motivation here? These pipelines were expensive. They were a long-term investment by the Russians. Um, And they were the most important economic links to Europe that they had. Why blow them up? Um, It could be basically Moscow understands that we're in a new world now. And that this, this model, this, this economic model is over, right? That's one way to look at it. That's possible. Uh, but I don't know any do you, either of you have any thoughts on what the Russian motivation might be. What what are you going
2: to answer? Uh well to at first thing first uh, not all the pipelines were blown out. There's one thing three of the four. Remaining. Three of the four. Right. Yeah. Right so we have pretty much 20 what um uh, what is it 22.5 bcm still available filled with gas. Actually, because the interesting part was that Russia filled with gas not only Nord Stream One but also Nord Stream Two, which was not operational due, due not due to technical issues but due to uh, uh, due to the um, uh, European law, and it was just not uh, processed by the uh, German authorities. And as soon as the uh, as the um, explosions happened, um, actually and later on as well, Russia suggested just running whatever was available for Nord Stream 2, which does not comply with the EU law. If you think about it, uh, it's a great way of dividing and conquering, um, particularly if winter was cold. I think um, truly to a good extent, Russia thought uh, with cold winter will help their, help their case in many ways, and potentially having one more line left over and offering gas to country that suffers from um, insufficient in gas could become a, a, a way of right. of not only ac- for Germany, Germany might have not accepted it, but the very least, it would bring discord within Germany or within the EU.
1: It's interesting. Why blow up only three of the four? Why leave one right. operational? That's the other thing that's weird about this. Go ahead, Ben. Well, that's, that's I think speaks significantly to the motivation. And so, uh, it's been
0: pretty, you know, I think one of the things you have to have to point out is that the investigations that are going on, the reporting that's going on, you have um, you know, you have folks that have been watching this since day one, like three of us, and you have folks that have come into this because it's, you know, a big flashy story about a big explosion, you know, that have, that have come into this, and there's, so you have the kind of the everyone running around the soccer ball like you're a kid's soccer team sort of thing. You know, a lot of people coming in, and, you know, that heard about Nord Street Group the first time around when the, uh, the explosion took place, but Looking at, like, let's say Russian motivation, you might say, okay, well, it's a... Why would the Russians blow up their own pipeline? And, and saying that sounds good until you start thinking about, well, what was the, What were their policy moves ahead of... Okay, they were cutting off Nord Stream 1. Why would they cut off Nord Stream 1? Okay, the the Kremlin Peskov, uh Putin many times during that summer, uh, you know, the summer of the Siemens turbine uh, story last year, kept pointing out that, well... You know, even if we don't get those Siemens turbines, if only sanctions on Nord Stream two were lifted, those those pipes could be started tomorrow. And once we got to zero, uh, the full cutoff at the start of September, they said that again. They came on and said, yeah, "We had the sa- only net sanctions on Nord Stream two lifted, then they could start tomorrow." Then the explosions happened, and one of the first statements by Putin was, "Well, three of the four pipelines were hit. Nord Stream one is inoperable." Nord Stream 2, one of its lives are inoperable, but yet there is this one pipe of Nord Stream 2, if only the sanctions were lifted on it, it could be going forward. And again, that suggests to me, if if this was uh, the Russians that did it, that that is part of their motivation. In addition to the other thing, which I mentioned earlier, which is the kinetic strikes that it began shortly thereafter against Ukrainian infrastructure, it's interesting that the Russians were hitting and have continued to hit Ukrainian electricity grid and, like, and critical infrastructure, et cetera, around the country, pointing out to the Europeans as winter was approaching last year that they can reach out and touch any infrastructure in Ukraine theatically through, through missile and and um, and rocket strikes. The, th- the thing that they had not touched yet and still haven't is the Ukrainian gas transmission system, which they themselves were using to get their gas to Europe. Okay, so by by if it were the Russians again, this, this motivation. This will be yet another another point that by cutting off Nord Stream 2 physically and pointing out that, you know, these sort of things can happen to infrastructure and then pointing out that, oh, well, now we're getting infrastructure around the country in Ukraine, but we still have spared the Ukrainian gas transmission network. They could put pressure on the Europeans to then put pressure on the Ukrainians to come to the table to, to freeze the conflict, et cetera And so that is, you know, that is... To me, in line with Kremlin policy from day one, in not only the Ukrainian conflict but also its use of
1: energy as a weapon. Yeah, no, at all. This this all does kind of scan. Go ahead, Anna.
2: If I can add, it's important to underscore that while Germany had no other, that not as much of a connection, or Europe didn't have much of a diverse diverse ways of connecting to other gas than Russia. Russia was diversified in terms of pipeline. It could easily send as much gas as it needed from Ukrainian pipelines, which it avoided as it was bombing even the gas pipelines that deliver gas to the uh, to the Ukrainian cities. So Russia made sure it's diversified before the war with Ukraine in terms of its access to the European market. The bombing and, and impossible, impossibility of use of Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2 did not make Russian ability... To, to deliver sufficient amount of gas to Europe any lower. Mm. And because Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 were thought as, as an alternative and actually replacement of the Ukrainian transit, not an addition to Ukrainian transit to supply more gas to Europe.
1: Right, no, so when, I mean, again, stressing that we don't know yet, when we looking at the big picture here, we're looking at capabilities, looking at motive, The the picture, it does get a little bit clearer. We still need to learn more facts. Before I want to move into the second part to talk about the post-Nord Stream energy landscape, I did want to just briefly touch on these conspiracy theories and and the disinformation that's been out there. I mean, again, the damage of the narrative hardening that it was Ukraine, and this happened, again, following that New York Times report uh, on the U.S. intelligence review of what turned out to be Dutch intelligence, and it turned out to be one source, Um, This is solidified into fact for some people. There's a piece in the nation a little while back saying, you know, the, the new narrative on Nord Stream is terrifying. The Ukrainians have gone rogue and the U.S. couldn't stop them. This is out there. And that's one bit of this, which, again, serves Russian interests here. It plays into those who want an excuse not to continue supporting Ukraine. Right, that's one thing. But then there's these other absurd conspiracy theories that are out there that the the U.S. was behind it, or so. Then you want to kind of just briefly touch on some of those, so we can comment on this this aspect. Look, you know, let's set back to the day of this explosion,
0: right? So we didn't even know it was an explosion. Within 24, 48 hours, it was not clear exactly what happened until we started hearing uh, that there were seismic measurements made that there was an explosion out there. The first headlines that people that were following this as as closely as some, you know, three of us would have looked at this, it was that they had depressurized. So it was unclear initially what was going on. It was interesting within the first 48 hours or so, however, um, experientially on Twitter, I am seeing a lot of what I would probably classify as Russian bot activity. I don't know exactly how you classify this, but all posting all of a sudden the same exact, you know, 15 second clip from President Joe Biden, Standing back at that press conference I was talking about in February, standing right. next to Olaf Schultz saying, you know, we've at, you know asked the question, how will you stop or we will bring it in? But the problem with this, they're pointing at that, oh, look, this is going to go that the U.S. did it. Right. The U.S. must be behind it. The problem is, what is the context of those questions? questions at that press conference were about sanctions. I and mean, it was clear that that was the context that was going on. And part of the reason I know that it was clear is that it was a Deutsche Welle reporter that asked it. And I was personally on the post stage show with Brent Goff on the day uh, talking about that press conference and answering those exact questions uh, about sanctions. And um, so it wasn't, you know, some sort of weak and a nod, you know, that we're going to move out of the kinetic strike. The idea that the U.S. was behind this in and, and, right there was this cyber sh- um, article that came out that had you know, off. I think others pointed out, oh, well, it's very detailed. So it mu- you know, there must be some brassity to it. And there's some, I would say, weaponization of the UN Security Council trying to push this uh, from the Russian side. I don't I think a lot of the Hirsch article has been debunked at this point. Yeah. Um, but you know, there was this story that came out in the Gray Zone a few weeks ago that the reported, you know, US Navy diving boot was found back there. And and it's interesting because I joked with people at the time, Brian, maybe even I said you. Um, you know, one of the one of the ways you'll you might know that the Russians did this is if all of a sudden you know the Russian investigation finds the uh, the wallet of a, a CIA operative and a passport of a State Department official down in <laughs> the along with it. Right? Right. So that's that's the sort of thing that we have to watch out for. But you know, was it the US that did it? No, it absolutely wasn't. It would go absolutely against our own support for decades on European energy. Not to mention that the idea that biden administration waived sanctions on north stream 2 to make good with germany in summer of 21 even though energy was being weaponized and then waited until the very last second before the war to push the sanctions through finally again and then even when the war was raging supported germany's push even though it was against uh you know the the technical assessments of germany's own ministries except for the, the chancellery apart pushed which that To release these turbines, pushing back on energy weaponization just weeks before these blasts, the idea that that same administration would have, you know, somehow resorted to
1: dramatic kinetic strikes. Are you kidding me? No way. But in the absence of facts, this kind of conspiracy... Exactly. Technical feasibility feasibility
0: has to be part of these discussions.
1: And, And that's a good way to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and broaden the aperture a bit to look at Russia's diminished capacity to use energy as a weapon post- Nord Stream. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Virtual Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council Eurasia Center. Joining me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Benjamin Schmidt, a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Kleinman Center for Energy Policy and an associate of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Spence also a former European Energy Security Advisor at the US State Department. And joining us from Swibosion, Poland, it is Anna Mikulska, a fellow in energy studies at Rice University's Baker Institute, and also works together with Ben at the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at And I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical
2: кадры, которые мы получили только что. Владимир Путин не слушал. сегодня в Это я уже работу. А сотрудники безопасности вас с новым
1: веком. as long as I've known you, going back to your time at the State Department, you've been hunting this great white whale called Nord Stream. You argued correctly, in my view, that it was a national security threat for the United States and its allies, that it created dangerous energy dependencies in Europe, and that it was a conduit for Russian weaponized corruption. Well, it seems you have caught your great white whale uh, before the explosion in September 2022. As we noted, Nordstrom was offline due to sanctions. Europe is retooling its energy focus away from Russia. So I want to get this from both of you. Uh, ben, why don't you start? Are we in a whole new world, though? In which, which Russia's ability to leverage and weaponize hydrocarbons is diminished or eliminated, or is this just an interregnum?
0: Well, call me Ishmael, uh, Brian. Thank you for that introduction. I, I will point out that the the white whale aspect of this is, you know, policy and sanctions uh, were were what we focused on. It's uh, in this post-explosion world, certainly not something that any actor. Uh, I, I would condone any actor doing, again, Nord right. Stream pipelines. I want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, if it was the Ukrainians, it was the wrong move. It was the Russians, it was the wrong move. It was, you know, anyone else, it was the wrong move. So make, make that very clear. That harms Europe's energy security and sets us in this paradigm now where critical infrastructure protection needs to be coming to the fore. Um, so are we in a better position now than we were? I think yes. Uh, in terms of the security of supply, I think that the uh, amount of energy infrastructure, in particular LNG imports, uh, sorry, import terminals, polluting sort of regasification units. Uh, several have been placed on the North and Baltic Sea coastlines of Germany. Uh, there is uh, more on the way in uh, southeastern Europe. I will point out that this notion that Putin came and in, in, you know, tried to sell the air to one of a Turkish gas hub, um, this is a, a major concern because um, for all of the Diversification infrastructure away from Russian energy dependency that's gone on. The idea of a Turkish gas hub in general, not a bad idea, can diversify. There are a lot of sources from Missouri gas, the Middle East, LNG, et cetera. The Turks can play a massive role in helping the energy security in particular southeast of Southeastern Europe. But if there is an increase in Russian gas, okay, there will be, I promise you, Brian, there will be a push by the it's just a commercial deal and Kondal no. crowd that we should just take Turkish gas, quote-unquote, even if it's actually just whitewashed Russian gas or Russian gas by another name. Um, And that is a massive concern because the idea that uh, the likes of of Schroeder and Karen Kneisel and others, that they have moved on and and are in some sort of Western-facing world out of the war has begun, is is false. Schroeder was seen at the Russian embassy's uh, Victory Day uh, celebration, a few uh, a few weeks ago and was chastised for it. Apparently, Egon Prez, uh, the last uh, leader of uh, the data era was there as well. and Karen Kneisel should, uh, uh, showed up uh, popped up at the uh, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, told reporters that of course she would dance with Putin again, the one that she danced with at her wedding several years ago and uh, and that she was starting a think tank with St. Petersburg University. Uh, as well, so again, the 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 concern of a return to business as usual is still there. I think there will be a block that pushes for this, um, and so we need to be vigilant for that.
1: Yeah, just for our listeners, just the, the, that is the reference to the former chancellor of Germany and the former chancellor of Austria, um, foreign minister, foreign minister of Austria. Excuse me, um, Anna. How do you see this from Europe? I mean, how do you see post Nord Stream European energy policy evolving? Is there a role for Russia in this a lot of countries including Poland and the Baltic states have pretty much weaned themselves off of Russian energy almost entirely uh do you see a continent-wide shift is the, is what the Eastern Europeans have been saying all along going to become European policy how, how do you see this going forward uh
2: I absolutely I absolutely see a shift uh, I don't think uh Russian gas will ever be um, as dominant as it has been before the Ukrainian war and before North Stream. Has uh, has uh, has been um, has exploded. Uh, however, I also just like Ben see a, a time where it there it could be that Russian gas will be an um, access or will be desired as a way to support, uh, for example, specific economies. So there are places, particularly in the South of Germany, that are fed by Russian gas, for example, and they are actually the highly the the. The, the, the manufacturing states, which support a lot of the economy, which have issues with accessing either other gas or renewable energy as well, because they are not close to the, uh, to the, to the wind, uh, the offshore wind and so on. So I think there is potential for, uh, for um, uh, players or, or actors in Europe to want uh, some Russian gas. Uh, however, it will be very de- be- will be backed up by all the different types of energies and access to LNG terminals and so on, and I think um, it also must be from a country that's not an aggressor. So I do not I do not foresee uh, Russia doing what it's doing in Ukraine and uh, sending more gas uh, than uh, or gas via uh, Nord Stream. Two, for example, I think what we need to underscore, however, is that Europe has not banned Russian gas. Europe has not sanctioned Russian gas. The only sanctions that are coming are from Russia that that uh, that uh, that sanction actually gas that would come from from uh, through uh, Poland as a as a revenge for Poland not agreeing to pay for rubles uh, for the gas that it right. was uh, bringing. So it's it's not like we can. You know we can uh, we can say oh Europe is sanctioning Russian gas it has says it has suggested that it will get better in getting off of Russian gas however for example Europe has increased significantly its uh, its supply of Russian LNG over the last uh, over the last year significant significantly more of Russian LNG has been delivered to Europe and that includes both Novatec which is Independent, if you can say so, Russian company as well as Gazprom, uh, which started exporting Russian LNG from uh, Portobayolga.
1: Right. So, um, so, so, then how? I mean, are we in a? I mean, because part of me is looking at this and saying this is a seismic shift. Um, this, there's no going back now. Um, but as Anna points out. There's, uh, there's, there's a lot of people that would love to get back to business as usual. There aren't sanctions on gas right now. I mean, what, do you, what has to happen now to really solidify? I think the infrastructure investments have to be, be you know put on uh,
0: light speed. Uh, clearly, the um, hydrocarbon for hydrocarbon swaps were the fastest things last winter to get Europe through. So that, what I mean by that is uh, swapping gas for global gas supply is very important. I think the repolar EU plan is very important because that allows for investments in uh, non-Russian you know, infrastructure and nations. For example, uh, trying to capture Egyptian um, flared gas uh, to, to increase energy efficiency for natural gas. Of course, the, uh, the, 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 the real solution for all of this is continued research and development, basic science uh, um, funding and research on renewables energy technology. So we get to a decarbonized future. We have to both address the climate crisis and the authoritarian influence crisis uh, in terms of Russia's uh, hydrocarbon resources. So by deploying more, um, you know, uh, renewable energy infrastructure to the greatest extent possible, and of course not swapping that for uh, critical minerals and uh, you know renewable energy uh, dependence on authoritarian nations elsewhere, such as China. Uh, so it's a it's a tightrope walk to to get across, but. We can possibly get to a decarbonized and um, you know less uh, authoritarian influence energy future in Europe, um, but it means that the infrastructure has to start being built now because you can't build this stuff over. Right.
1: Yeah. No. Instead, I'll oh, go ahead Anna.
2: I just wanted to add, I wanted to add that besides infrastructure, there have to be long term agreements between Europeans and other LNG providers to bring that gas to Europe. Europe cannot rely on spot prices or on spot gas, even if, just like last year, it can afford paying high prices. Because what happens is basically uh, the stability of the market suffers, and countries um, elsewhere may not be as lucky and may not afford that gas, and uh, the coal market becomes uh, a a problem. And that goes. uh, So when you think about, you know, Europe did not experience gas crisis. But Pakistan has last year because it could not bring even the contracted LNG to its shores since European prices were so high that those who had contracted right. Pakistan were sending it somewhere else and paying the fines. Right. So this is something that if Europe wants to have the gas that's not from Russian, it has to make sure that it assures it and makes this, the, uh, the market stable. Right. And that's problematic because you you need to kind of balance that the will that you know the, the 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 really push for renewables, but at the same time thinking about how to make things stable. That's the security premium that needs to be paid.
1: Yeah, no, and this is going to be a shift. I mean, my final kind of big big thoughts on this are: number one, um, you raised the issue of price, Anna. I mean. Uh, the German economy, which is the engine of the European economy, was based largely on the provision of cheap Russian gas. And even if everything else, renewables, LNG, uh, Norway steps up, it's still you're not going to get that that low price that that, that Germany and Europe had been accustomed to. That's going to necessitate a big shift here, although I think it's a shift that Europe has to make because it is in it's, it's, we're basically talking about security here, um, and, and this war has kind of driven that point home. The other big picture point I want to make, I made at a very outset of the program, these pipelines are more than just pipelines. They were symbols of Russia's economic ties to Europe. And in this sense, I think we are moving into an entirely new world as far as this is concerned. This is something that's been going on since the 1970s, right, since, since the Soviet time. And we are now leaving that world, and um, I, 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 uh, th- th- this is this is this is really a, a new paradigm we are shifting into. I'm looking at the clock. If I keep uh, go ahead, Ben, one, one last one last thought, what, one last thought on this, Brian, and that I, again,
0: I, I just want to repeat my call for the Times, the Post, the Journal, and other media outlets to double down on technical analysis and feasibility regarding the North screen sabotage. I think it would be a great public service given the amount of speculation. This information, immediate churn there is on these threads. I, you know the the experts that I have talked to that are much more expert than me on maritime issues and you know dive you know technical diving and uh, and things like this. Uh, their their initial gut reaction is that it's possible. It's not necessarily literally impossible. It's possible to anchor a vessel like that. It's possible to dive down. But it, uh, sorry, in terms of the sailboat, but very very difficult, right? So so can't be ruled out, but it's also technically. You know, not so feasible when you have vessels like the uh, subsea operations capable Russian vessels sitting right there at the time as well, right before the crime took place. That has to be looked at, right, seriously. And um, for now, doubt must still prevail. To quote a uh, a, a Danish article that I read yesterday on.
1: Yeah, no. I would love to see a technical analysis of Nord Stream similar to the one the Times did on the dam, which basically closed the it, book. And it's hard. We just saw this go on with this this Titanic, uh, the Titanic tragedy this week of the the
0: submersible. It's hard. That underscored to me again. It's hard to do investigations in the offshore. It's very right. hard, right? And so the idea that you're going to have a crime scene analysis like you would that would would you know happen very quickly in the the depths of the Baltic Sea. It's going to take time, and attribution will be very difficult, if not impossible. I think we'll get there, but we need to be patient, and we need to have technical analysis. Of this.
1: And we need to withhold judgment until we really know what happened. Absolutely. On, on that note, I'll wrap it up. If I keep going, I'm afraid my producers are going to sanction me. So that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for. <laughs> today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Virtual Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McFowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, has been the one and only Benjamin Schmidt, senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Kleinman Center for Energy Policy and an associate of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. Spends also a Former European Energy Security Advisor at the US State Department. And joining us from Sweboshin, Poland, which I hope I've been pronouncing correctly, has been the one and only Anna Makulska, a fellow in energy studies at Rice University's Baker Institute. Anna also works together with Ben Schmidt at the Climate Center for Energy at UN. Thank you both for the enlightening discussion and making us all a whole hell of a lot smarter. Thanks so much, Brian. Always a pleasure to be Thank here. Thank you so much. You also like to- thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in and working order throughout our discussion, and Zachary Bell and our, our all-important post-production duties cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Podcast Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team